Having a positive foundation growing up is the key to so much. It's, does, it's not the be all and end all because you can turn your life around no matter when, but I wouldn't have come out as well and as strong as I could have, or I, I did as I did do, without the positive grounding and foundation that they they gave me. The love, the nurturing, the support, the caring, the attitude is you can try this and you can do whatever you want. Even though I didn't believe it in myself because of the trauma that I suffered, because of the negative thoughts in your head, but because of what that foundation they gave me, I believed I could achieve anything. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. And today I'm excited to speak with the founder of the Momentum Revolution, a doctor of chiropractic, men's mental health advocate, TEDx speaker on men's mental well-being, and the author of Soften the F Up. He has a doctorate in chiropractic from Murdoch University and is the director of not-for-profit organization Hands On India. His career has involved working in the healthcare industry for over 20 years, is a principal chiropractor at Panjara Chiropractic, was a partner in Rock Tape Australia, and is the founder of the Momentum Revolution. I'm honored to introduce to you a highly sought-after speaker, life coach, and mentor who has overcome depression and is now focused on empowering men to be better. Dr. Brett Della. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here and having a, a chat and catch up. Uh, it certainly is. And uh, every time I do have a conversation with you, I, I do, do enjoy where it goes and I learn so much off you. And uh, so, yeah, really, really excited to to learn a lot more from you today. Thanks, Craig. And uh and I always learn so much from you. So it's always it's always great having those conversations where you can just bounce off each other, which is which is awesome. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I'm really curious to kick off here because I don't know too much about your childhood, but I'd love to know where, where did you grow up and and kind of what was your your passion as a child? I grew up uh, basically in Bassendine, in in a suburb in in WA in Perth. And we're only a street away from the river, so I grew up. I spent a lot of time down the river with some with a few mates, fishing and swimming, and Tarzan swings and that sort of thing. So we had a very uh, relaxed childhood, very open childhood. Lots of kids on the street, lots of friends to play with, and uh, and then on on the other side of that, every school holidays, we would almost always go to my grandparents or uncles' farms. And spent a lot of time in the country, so I got the best of both worlds in that sense, and uh, had a lot of growing up. My passion was definitely sport. Uh, played a lot of hockey initially, and then uh, fell in love with football, cricket, and and fishing was another big one. So I spent a lot of time out in the outdoors. So some team sports there, and then obviously with the fishing, you got a plenty of opportunity to kind of be in your own thoughts and and uh, learn a lot from yourself. But the, from those team sports, was there anything that you kind of learned from back then that you felt has carried over to the rest of your life? 100%. Team sport for me is one of the most valuable valuable things I think children should get into because it teaches you about teamwork, discipline, commitment, and, and that just carries on because you're there for 
20 other people in a footy field, for example. You're there to look after each other, to protect each other, to commit to each other. Uh, and and for me, I, and I just love the camaraderie and the mateship around that too. And that that for me, it was that that men's camaraderie I really, really enjoyed. And the team sport for me is just, it's one of those things that's been a, a, a stepping stone, I suppose, with life, with everything that I do. So it's, yeah, I loved, I loved my time playing sport. Mm, very, very good. And obviously, you know, two very different sports. So one's a winter sport, one's a summer, but um, as well. And, uh, but I suppose many, many life lessons. I remember playing field hockey. It's a great sport. It's very, very fast now. It's a different game altogether. Um, very yeah, much so <laughs> that camaraderie i certainly do miss from those from those days for you at school were you a natural leader were you someone that tended to sit in the background you know how did that go for you yeah i i, I was a natural leader uh it wasn't something i was really aware of but i was definitely a natural leader i didn't wasn't really aware of it i suppose until i i started work and uh we would made to go and do this group workshop for for three or four hours one particular day when I was working for the government. And they gave one group a leader and they had to assign tasks, the other group no leader and see what happened. And myself, another guy who was very much a leader, I suppose, as well, we just took control and, and assigned tasks and we sort of co-led. Uh, and I think that is probably the way I like to do things anyway. I, I don't... I like to be able to, with what I do nowadays, is empower others to, uh, to to delegate. So it empowers them to lead as well in their own space, in their own time as well. So well, I think I've always been more of a natural leader, especially when it came to the sports sort of things, and that's just developed into work and business as time goes on. Mm. And you, did you have someone who is like a, a big role model during that time that has had quite a profound effect on you in, in your life and career? Great question. Um, look, my father was always probably my biggest role model and hero in, in, in regards to growing up. You know, he he was always, and he still does to this very day, gives back to the community involved with scouts and rotary and now the men's shed and he's always been giving back and been part of that you know leading from the front so i suppose dad would have to be the, the main person i think i i've learned from and still admire um to this day mm. and what was your first car <laughs> an ivy colored horrible light greeny ivy colored um uh, Twitter Corona, Twitter Corona, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have that car when you got your first job? And and what was the first job that you had? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I was working for the government. Uh, that when I mentioned before, I was working for Lantern Surveys, which is now Atlanta Administration. And I was just not just. I was an office person, and I had to carry files. It was all when it was all manual. And I was in the records department. We had to go through and we'd have a section and you have three sections and each week you'd have a different section and you'd move from week to week. And you'd have different sections within that department. So there might be seven or eight sections and each room had its own area. And you had to take the files and drop it off to the different people at those seats. So let's say we talk about roads and there'd be nine people in roads and be R1, R2, R3, up to R9. And you'd have to get the files, take them into the R, put them in the in tray, and then collect the out tray, and then go back to the office and sort them out. And then you have to, you'd have to do that 10 times a day. It was the most boring <laughs> job. Uh, but the people there were fantastic, had a great time there. But as a job, it was it was just a foot in the door. It was very boring. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting um, challenge. So how did you find your way into becoming a chiropractor? Uh, it was a long journey, actually. I, I end up leaving there, working for Consumer Affairs for a little while, and then I joined the police force. And I was a police officer for, for eight or nine years and spent the last two years as a detective. So I spent a lot of time in the country, in Kalgoorlie and then in Broome, and then came back to uh, to Perth as a detective for a couple of years. Got to the point where it was just, it was a very negative industry, and and I'd had enough. And I went away uh, with a bunch of mates who I played footy and cricket with. There was five of us. We went away and we went fishing for a, a week up up north of Perth in uh, Kalbarri. 
and I read a book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And I read this book and I went, you know what, there's more to this life than just dealing with the negative side of life all the time. So I ended up coming back from that holiday and resigning from the police force and not knowing what I was going to do. I ended up working in, uh, I fell into a, I went to my financial advisor about some stuff and he said, come and work for us. So he offered me a job without any experience in in that at all. I did that for about three years. And I, again, I didn't, it, it wasn't my cup of tea. I'm not a, not a salesman per se, especially back in those days. Uh, and and I, I really didn't like the job at all. I ended up going traveling, coming back, doing a few odd sods and jobs, and then working as a sales rep for, for Chubb Security and didn't like that at all. And I remember driving to driving to the beach between Christmas and New Year. We had Christmas and New Year off. And and I was driving uh to the beach. It was it was Boxing Day or the day after. And I was driving to the beach and I was looking looking forward to it. And, and as I was driving to the beach, it's actually the same road that you take to go to work, which is, you know, 20 minutes away. And the beach was about half an hour away. And I was driving along and the closer I got to the beach, the more sick I, I felt, felt physically sick. And I thought, oh, something's not right here. And I remember stopping at a set of lights, looking down the road and seeing my work premises and going, effing the name of the company, I won't mention it. And uh, and I, I just, I remember thinking, I just, I, I can't stand that place. And I drove off and the further I got away from it, the better I felt. And I went, oh my God, I'm suffering from anxiety. Hmm. I was like, what the hell? I don't suffer from anxiety. I, I, I knew straight away what it was. And I went, okay, I've got to do something that I want to do. And and so it was in that moment I went, okay, I'm going to be 40 with a degree or 40 without a degree. And so I made up my mind right then and there that I'd be going off and doing um, something else that I, I loved. And the two things I was always really fascinated about uh, was flying and being a pilot. And the second thing was health and well-being in the body. And, and I, I'd uh, been going to a chiropractor since I was probably six or seven years old. And I love the concept of of the body healing itself through adjustments and you know uh, helping maintain the uh, the the physical aspects of things as well. And at that same time, nine eleven happened, and the bottom fell out of the the airline industry. And Murdoch University was opening up a school of chiropractic, and of course, I fell into that. It was just like the stars aligned and. At the age of 35, a month after my 35th birthday, I went to uni for the first time and I uh, spent five years studying and came out the other side at the age of a month before my 40th birthday, um, became a chiropractor. Brilliant. I, I, love, I love the story and the way you found yourself into it. And you talked about healing there, you know, from a body perspective. How much of the work you do in chiropractic is is also mental mental healing? Oh, uh <laughs> A lot. Um, I'm, as you know, now the last few years, the last five years of my journey has been totally different to what it was probably the first five years as a chiropractor or first eight years as a chiropractor. And, and you know, and then studying for the five years on top of that, I was a very closed show. I was now I'm a lot more open. And, and by being a bit more open about my own journey, it gives up other people permission as well. But even before that, I, I remember my very first patient, we moved, I graduated we moved to Carnarvon, started up a, a practice in Carnarvon. And my very first patient, my very first day, I just started doing some work on it. And she just burst into tears. And I panicked. It's like, have I hurt you? I hurt you. Have I hurt you? And she goes, no, no. It's just that you're the first person who, male who's touched me in 12 years since my husband passed. Just burst into tears. And I was like, oh, my God, this is bigger than what I expected. you know. And, and just the physical touch itself is very powerful. And over the years, I've had a lot of people just just pour things out to me. So even though I'm uh, there as a chiropractor and do the physical side, it's it's very much you are a you are a healer in so many different levels, um, whether it's emotional, spiritual, mental, um, and then the physical side of things. It's it's quite a um, uh, challenging but very very rewarding job because people trust you and in that space you have to be you know many things at different times the unintended healing i suppose which is yeah quite fascinating to you know you you suspect you're going in just to fix someone's body and wow so that was a, a big shift for you very very early on and obviously your career has now progressed into a lot more on the mental side in, in regards to that but we will we'll touch that a little bit later on mm. 
from your perspective, when we look at, you know, both, you know, any gender in the society, you know, over your lifetime, what sort of things are you seeing now in regards to the stresses on both the body and the mind in regards to today's society and the expectations that are put on people? Uh, we're so busy. We're, we're so busy. And, and that, you know, there's so much expected of us as individuals and, you know, from a, from a man's perspective, you know, we've got to be there at work, earning an income, supporting the family, still having this, this persona of who we should be and how we should act sometimes, which, you know, we'll probably touch on later on. Uh, and then from a female perspective, you know, and I can only look at this from an outsider's point of view because, you know, the whole working mother, um, housekeeper, as in as in the person who keeps the household together, not housekeeping per se, but keeps the household together, keeps it running smoothly uh, and still be this strong, powerful, independent woman um, who does everything. And it's just like it's it's so much to juggle and we, 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 we don't stop, take a step back and just look at all that we do every day and just have a breath. And, it, and, you know, and when it comes to the physicality side of things, you know, sitting at a computer all day, the, you know, when I see the kids coming through and they're sitting down with their head down and they're, they're, they're arched and they've got their hand in a phone or a, or a, or a, an Xbox or something like that, you know, there's going to be some real, you know, talk, talk about, they call it tech neck now, but this technology where we're leaning forward and watching the, you know, we have so many issues that will come on down the track because of, the way we do our work now. It's become so much more sedimentary where we just sit around and, and we aren't physical. So we have to make sure we take the time to actually be physical and do physical things, whether it's just walking or going for a run or, you know, just being active. Um, otherwise, we just get this really negative lifestyle. If we teach it to our kids early, it's very hard to break them of that habit as they get older. So it's it's going to be, it's a challenge for every single person. And it affects us mentally as well, as you probably know, being an ex-professional athlete yourself, uh, you know, being out and about, you know, being in the sun, breathing the oxygen in the ocean, it just stimulates you physically and mentally and spiritually. Um, but whereas when we're in front of a screen, it's just this negative vibe that is dead. It's really a dead vibe back at us. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. There's a couple of things you're touching on there that uh, that I'm really sensing at the moment. Obviously, becoming into parenthood, and mm. uh, you know, as a as a father, you're there's lots of things you would like to, and you try and take half the load. But it's very difficult when you have a newborn because the the mother plays such a um, a huge part of the the nurturing at that stage and you know obviously with breastfeeding and, and things like that it, it, it's a big part so you can only take so much off them but i'm watching julie you know she still wants to work two to four uh, hours a day and you know she's the baby's only two weeks old so um mm. she's kind of right into it and and obviously we always having conversations around you know just be careful because we can get too busy we can the stress is compounding and um, yes, it might be an outlet for you. Just just make sure that you're not overdoing it, though. And um, mm-hmm. and it's even the same on my side. You know, you you're depleted from sleep. You're you're trying to still run a business. You're you're trying to be a dad, and you're looking after as many things, as many chores in the house as you can. But it it, it does. It's you know, it's it's pretty full on. Um, so how much has that has changed from say when I was born? I would say probably quite a bit. And you know, you, then you talk about those. The positions that you're in, like I try and get up and walk around, you know, every 45 minutes where I can. Um, today's going to be a difficult one because I've got back-to-back meetings most of the day, but I will make sure that I call some of the meetings early and uh, so that I can get up and about. But yeah, it's definitely making a shift. But Greg, in, can I just, yeah. sorry, can I just mention, you know, one of the things I've found in the work that I do and, and people I've spoken to, when it comes to mums and, and new mums, for the first two years, the babies are basically not self-sufficient whatsoever. Mm. And so for the first two years, they are wholly and solely focused on, on nurturing and caring and, and looking after the, this baby. That's their, that's their role. And as a result, they lose who they are uh, as a person 
for that time as an individual because it's all wrapped up around the baby. And this is this is a normal process. And if they have another one two years later, then all of a sudden it's, it, it rocks out to four years mm-hmm. or six years. And so for women, it's a really, it's a it's a big journey back into finding their independence and their individuality again. So uh, as a as a male looking from the outside in, you know, and not being a father myself, even though Kim and I tried many years ago, it's it's a it's a massive journey for the, for the women in our lives um, who go through that motherhood stage and then getting back into that that independence once the child becomes a little bit more self sufficient or they've got other avenues where people can look after the mother. I think that kind of touches on a really important topic around the fact that your identity is not your work and Mm. your identity is much more than I think it's so important, you know, for someone who's, you're having just had a baby or having a baby and that period where, you know, your focus does need to be a lot more on that baby is just making sure that your identity is not based on one thing. It's not Mm. based on my career or based on, you being an athlete, if you're an athlete or wherever it may be, and and being okay that the priorities will shift, that you at times you're going to have more focus on yourself, and other times you have more focus on other people, and and making sure that during that your your time when you're bringing someone new into the world, right up until probably they, I don't know if you ever let go of them being a little baby <laughs> or your early child, but you know, through that time is, is making sure that it's more than just the child and it's, you know, it's more than just a job as well. So how can you make sure you try and keep it in perspective and, and know that your identity is not always going to be the same? Mm. It ebbs and flows and it, it'll ebb and flow all the time. And I think it's really important that um, even, especially for like you and Julie at the moment, take that little bit of time out for yourself individually, but also as a couple. Hmm. Uh, so you not you don't get caught up in you know the hundred percent baby thing all the time, which is what you need to be. But just take an hour here and there, just for yourselves as a couple, just for yourself as an individual, so you have that space to, you know, it's not just uh, all empowering, I suppose, or all you know, overwhelming. So you're giving me permission to hand the baby over to my mum and dad while they're here so we can go on on a date? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. You need to have date night still, mate. Oh, uh, yeah. No, beautiful. No, we definitely will make sure we try and get those in there as well. Uh, now, switching to you, look, you've, uh, you know, you've had great, a, a great career, but you've also, you know, suffered from depression for 30 years of, of your life and um you know that that's a challenge we we wish we don't wish upon anyone to to go mm-hmm. through uh, obviously for you yes it may have been quite traumatic and challenging but it's also been quite a gift from what i've seen from the outside and now how you're giving back to society and helping a lot of people that uh have been through depression or other challenges in their life so you know, where did when did you first start to understand you were going into a depression mode or way of being? I, it was in my, my late teens, early 20s. I had, I had some childhood trauma and, it, I, I, look, I had an amazing childhood, an amazing, I've had an amazing life. Uh, but from the age of about 20 till I was 50, I just always had this cloud sitting over my shoulder ready to rain depression on me. And... And when I was when I had this childhood trauma, it was sort of the mind plays, I don't know if it plays tricks or it's just a very clever way to allow you to survive a traumatic experience. And it just shuts it down, locks it away. Mm-hmm. And so I had a very happy, supportive, loving, nurturing childhood, great family, great friends. And then when I was about 18, 19, all of a sudden things start to bubble up inside me. The memories from my past, even though they were always there, they never affected me emotionally. But as I got into this late teens, early 20s, all of a sudden the emotions of that particular trauma, um, which was uh, child abuse uh, by a neighbour, all of a sudden that's the emotions attached to it started to affect me. And by that stage, you know, 21, I joined the police force. So by that stage, you know, as a bloke back in, you know, 30-odd years ago, 35 years ago, as a man, be tough, hard enough, tough, toughen up, get on with it sort of thing you know just don't show emotions don't show that's a weakness you know if you show weakness it's it's you know it's 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 not you're not a man sort of thing and and so for me i always had this mindset that i i had to just ignore it and then as a police officer 
I'd actually seen one particular colleague be ridiculed because he was suffering from an incident that had happened to him as a police officer about 18 months earlier. And the the words around that was used for this particular officer, um, I look back, was appalling mm. because he didn't get the support. It was like, oh, you're just being weak, mate. Get over it. Get on with it. You know, suck it up, you know, you weak so-and-so. And and I look back at that now and I think, oh, that poor bugger, he was struggling. But I didn't understand it because I I didn't I didn't get it in my in myself at that particular time. And and all of a sudden, as I got further into into my career, you know, first couple of years as a police officer, I started dating a girl. I I work with. Uh, sorry, started dating a girl um, uh, in a country town, and she saw there was a problem. And now she, I was about twenty three at the time, and she was probably twenty, so she was only a kid herself. And I remember her saying, "What's going on?" And I just burst into tears, and I just went, "This is what's happened to me." And she was the first person I ever told. I told her my deepest, darkest secrets. All of a sudden, this this emotion, and it was depression. I just didn't understand it was depression in that, at that point in time. And I was struggling. And I was hitting the grog pretty hard in my late teens and, and 20s, um, you know, on my days off, uh, go out and party. I'd party hard. And and I just didn't understand what I was doing it for, but it was actually a numbing thing. And I, I, I look back now and I can see all the pieces and what was happening. I just... Because I was in it, I couldn't see it at the time. And and I think telling this particular young woman that my deepest, darkest secret, and all of a sudden she's like, she's young, she's going, well, this is too much for me. And mm. bit by bit, she started to pull away. Wow. And in the end, she started dating a guy I work with. And we actually hadn't even really separated or split up at that stage. She just started ghosting me. And she started dating a guy I work with, and it just... That on top of me trying to deal with my childhood stuff, it was just like a massive big rock. I just went into this massive deep depression and I really, and I lost weight. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I wasn't eating and and I was still trying to, trying to work uh, through that. And I remember I'd be awake at two o'clock in the morning and I had to go to work at eight and I just wanted to fall asleep. So I'd get up at two o'clock in the morning and go for an 8K run in the middle of the night in, in a country town and my colleagues would see me and they'd go, who's this bloke running? And they'd, oh, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I couldn't sleep. Oh, okay then. And so they see me running around at two or three o'clock in the morning trying to get, exhaust myself so I'd actually go to sleep. Even though I was exhausted, I just, I it, it wasn't working. And I just, and then that was just a roller coaster for the next 30 years. Wow. So you're dealing with not only depression, but sleep deprivation and... Mm. Oh, wow. Some really, really big challenges. So during that time, were people picking up that you were struggling, you know, apart from that young girl, um, were other people noticing it or? Definitely during that, during that period where I was um, I was partying hard, not sleeping, losing weight. Um, my colleagues especially, who was quite close to quite a few of them there, they knew I was struggling. They didn't really know why. They just thought it was because of the rejection. They didn't understand that I was going through a significant depression. Uh, I, I took, I think I took a, um, a week off work uh, with sick leave and and I tried to sneak down to Perth, but mum and dad somehow, you know, knew I was there and and I, I just burst into tears looking and said, I'm struggling. And they sort of knew at that point I was struggling a little bit, but they didn't know why. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, some years later when I was about 28, I decided to go and actually get some help and start seeing one of the uh, police psychologists. And that was the start of the journey into the healing, which took, you know, another 22 years, basically. And how did your parents respond in that time? Mum and dad didn't find out till I was 28. So once I started understanding it myself with the psychologist, uh, I I went and spoke to my sister, uh, one of my sisters, and I basically walked in and said, I've got something to tell you. I was very cold and a matter of fact about it. I was like, this is what's happened. This is what I'm dealing with. And she tried to be very comforting and supportive. And I'm like, don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Let's just go around and talk to mum and dad. I want to get it off my chest. And it was it was like a, I call it my police mode. It's like when when things happen uh, within, within the, like they call it job, when you're in the police force, if there's an event, you sort of go into this non-emotional mode, deal with the situation and be calm. And I was like in that sort of mode. And I still have that to this very day. We went around there and I started talking to mum and dad 
and I just burst into tears and I'm blubbering it out. Mum's in tears, very upset and emotional, obviously. Dad's very, very being, being very stoic, rubbing my shoulders, going, it's okay, we'll work through this, we'll get through this, it's okay. Uh, we'll find whatever it needs to help you. And, and I know mum went into depression after that. I know she struggled with that for a little while. Uh, and I'm sure dad, being very stoic, he probably buried it a little bit. But uh, as the years have gone on and, you know, dad and I have, you know, talked about different things, he's a lot more fragile around this subject now. So when he hears me speaking about it in public, he gets emotional every single time. And, uh, and I'm sure he won't. Uh, I, I did a TEDx talk. Uh, uh, about 12 months ago. And I remember my best mate was there and he got, I could feel the, sh the seat shaking. And it was because dad was crying so hard quietly in his chair because I was sharing this story about my childhood. Uh, but they, they've they been nothing but amazing support and always there for me whenever I needed, um, always checking up sometimes a lot less in the past few years since I've had Kim with, with me by my side, but uh, definitely would check up, maybe a little bit too often sometimes because like, I don't want to talk about it sort of thing, but amazingly supportive, beautiful, you know, caring parents. Beautiful. I just was, I was, I was just gutted that I heard them when I told them that was, but I had to let them know. Yeah. The beautiful unconditional love. And I would imagine as parents, they possibly went through a phase of feeling like they failed a bit to protect you um, and for it to happen. So yeah, a challenging time for them, but it's beautiful that you could have those open conversations with them and, and be, and have them there by your side as well um, during, during the past few years. I honestly, Craig, mum, I talk about foundation, positive foundation and, you know, uh, and I think, and having worked as a police officer and with the work I do now with men and women, Having a positive foundation growing up is the key to so much. It's does it's not the be all and end all because you can turn your life around no matter when. But I wouldn't have come out as well and as strong as I could have, or I, I did as I did do, without the positive grounding and foundation that they they gave me. The love, the nurturing, the support, the caring, the attitude is you can try this and you can do whatever you want even though I didn't believe it in myself because of the trauma that I suffered, because of the negative thoughts in your head, but because of what that foundation they gave me, I believed I could achieve anything. Not at the time, but that's what they tried to instill in me. And so for those people who don't have that negative foundation, I, and I deal with people all the time, you know, and they turn to drugs and porn and sex and all that sort of stuff. I'm not saying I didn't have an issue with sex and drinking and that sort of stuff because I did, but it could have been a much worse mm. journey for me if I didn't have that positive foundation. Mm. And over the last few years, you've been able to, you know, I think you talked about the last five years or so, you've been now able to take the learnings from your experience and been able to help a number of people through uh, your different programs there as well when we talk about you know the momentum revolution and momentum as well do you want to tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing there and 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 how is it i suppose for you has it been quite a cathartic experience for you to help you continually grow yeah well the workshops a workshop was a thing that changed my life i went to a, a workshop over in queensland and it was for three and a half days and i walked away from that workshop a different person because i got to deal with my trauma in a really powerful way in a very masculine way and a very safe environment and and i became addicted to these workshops and and i started mentoring men because it was like i did my life coaching course and i didn't want men to suffer like i did and, and so I started mentoring them. They're going, how about if you have a workshop here in WA? And it's like, oh, that's not what I'm, I do. I'm, I'm not sure if I can do that. But as, as time goes on, your mindset changes and you go, well, maybe I can. And so I was very blessed to have a bunch of men in my corner who supported me in this. And we ran our first workshop um, three years ago. And we're running three workshops a year. And, and those workshops, every time I go there, apart from obviously seeing the changes in the men that we work with and now the women with the momentum workshops, seeing the change in them, but 
learning something about myself every single time because every time you see a man go through their journey and their struggles and listen to what they have to say, it's just it reinforces what you've learned. And also you get new lessons as well along the way and you never stop growing, you never stop learning. And so for me, you know, the last last three years in particular has just been another massive shift in my mindset and my belief in who I am and what I can do and 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 the people around me and, you know, who I want to be with and who I want to be as a person. So it's it's one of the most powerful and rewarding things. I love my job as a chiropractor because I get to help people every single day. But as a uh, as a uh, mentor of the one-on-one or facilitator in the workshops, they're just, it's it's powerful and it's life-changing. And I just am so excited about every single one we do and and seeing them on the other side. And though it's a bit of a, uh, it's a roller coaster ride, uh, life's a roller coaster. It's never just a smooth transition. But seeing what comes out the other side after those two and a half days and then 12 months later and then three years later, it's just, it's, it's just so rewarding and it's so empowering um, for myself and for the men who are involved. It's it's amazing and women involved as well. Mm. And when you know, we're talking about uh, you know people that are, are facing those challenges. Uh, how how big a how big is it in Australia? How big is it worldwide? You know, how many people? Uh, in a state of anxiety or depression and or, or struggling with mental health issues on a daily basis? That's, I mean, I, I think the percentages are something like 25% of people will suffer from anxiety and uh, 20, uh, 15% of people with, with depression, I think. Uh, but I think it's much more than that. I think that's just the, the recorded ones. I think, especially from the men's perspective, it's it's reasonably high. I mean, we lose 2,300 men a year to suicide. And, you know, we, we lose 2.1 women, uh, 2.3 women and 7.1 men every day to suicide in this country. And, you know, when you're losing nine and a half people a day to suicide, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's scary. And, and I think the reason why the men's because women suffer from depression and anxiety higher than men. And and yet the the suicide rates are three times higher in men. So I think the men's coping mechanisms is is a lot less, mm. maybe because of society's stigma around mental health about who we have to be as a man, etc. Uh, but I, f- I forget the exact st- exact stats, but it was something like eight million people will suffer in Australia will suffer from a mental health disorder at some point in their life. So it's it's you know it's a massive percentage, which I think is forty four percent of the population. I think wow. what it was. So there's a massive percentage of the population at some stage will suffer from a mental health challenge, uh, and we have to be open. It's like this is just not, a, you know, one person here and there. It's only half of the people that we meet will struggle from a mental health challenge, and that's huge. And and to suffer in silence like we do, and I'm sure. I mean, Craig, how many people do you come across in your line of work that are struggling? Uh, with with challenges, you know, it's pretty common. It, it's it's very common, and and just to be and and to break the stigma and change the dialogue around this is so important to break that stigma and go. You know what? It's all right to talk about it. It's all right to ask for help. It's all right to find what works for you and go and do it. Uh, and and is it going to be a smooth transition? Is it going to be an easy path? No. I mean, I still have my days, my weeks where I I feel flat. Um, but I've got the tools and skills to work my way through it. I haven't really suffered from depression for the last probably five years, but definitely had some flat days and weeks mm. uh, as a result of life getting on top of us. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's an interesting space because as people start to open up a little bit more as well, the challenges that people face nowadays compared to, say, you know, when we were born in, in kind of early years, you know, now you've got social media in play where for certain people they can't hide uh, mm. and the pressures seem to be higher because they're exposed to a lot more of what they perceive as everyone got it all together type thing. Um, and, and so how do you, like, as people open up, are we seeing other people start to suppress more because of this perceived danger of the world being around you a lot more oh great question are they suppressing more i hope not 
I hope we're we're changing that. And this whole perception of we've got ourselves, you know, got our shit together. It's it's just not true, mm-hmm. you know. Kim and I don't have a perfect marriage, but we work hard on it. You know, we 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 rarely fight, uh, and and I'm very grateful for her and I being on the same path and the same journey and and being on the ma- same mindset when it comes to dealing with with you know challenges within a marriage, and uh, but when we do, we we take a step back and and look at it. And when we say to the people that we're mentoring or looking after um, in the workshops, we'll actually share that, you know, we struggle as individuals and we struggle in the marriage sometimes. Uh, and they're going, what, you, you actually have suffered from depression? And you'd, it's like, bloody oath, I, we, I still have bad days, you know. Mm. Just between Christmas and New Year, I was just feeling really flat, really struggled with motivation, really going, what am I doing this for? I'm working my ass off. I'm working twice as hard as I should be and and not getting any further ahead with life, you know. And it's just this this negative mindset, the negative voice in your head starts chatting to you. And, and you know, Kim goes, what's going on? And I, we sat down and had a conversation. She helped me work through it. We did some NLP and some journaling and some breath work and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And after two or three days, boom, I'm out of it and I'm on the other side and, and heading up the hill again. So um, it's uh, it's a challenge every day. And not every everyone you see on Facebook, it's all BS when they've got their life together. Mm. Everyone struggles. Everyone's got their challenges. Everyone's got, you know, we lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We, we struggle with relationships. We have problems with our children. We struggle financially. You know, everyone's got that stuff going on. And if, if you think they don't at some point in their life, then it's, you know, they're either lying to themselves or they're lying to everybody else because we all have those challenges at some level mm. or degree along our, along our journey. Mm. And just going back to your your workshops, you know, is there a framework that you have in regards to um, the way you go through the process with people? How does that work? Yeah, the 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 workshop is the workshops we do both for the men and women is both very structured, loosely, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. It's it's very organic, uh, but we have a structure that's organic. That's probably the best way to put it, and. And we have a whole different bunch of processes over the weekend that allows people to see things from a different perspective, allow them to open up at a different time or a different rate whenever they're ready, allows them to deal with certain things in a certain way. And then we also make sure that a lot of the stuff is very individual to that particular person. We try and when they go through certain processes like this, this, is, this one might be for everyone, but this one is just for you. And and we'll we'll structure that process just for your particular issue and what you, how you want to deal with it. So it's it's tailored to the individuals, but at the same time, it's it's structured uh, as a whole for a group. And and the whole idea is to come through the other side, going, wow, okay, I understand myself now. I understand what my my issue was, and I've dealt with that issue, and I can start to move forward and put the pieces back together. Mm. And that's the big thing. Mm. And, you know, in regards to the support that you have at those workshops, obviously it's not just you. you know, what's What other people do you have involved? What are their roles mm. to ensure there's uh, the right support there for the people as they go through a range of emotions, I would imagine? Yeah. Well, we've got a, a great array of men and women at the women's workshops who have done their – have done the workshops they've already been there and done it and you know i've got uh three men there who've done almost every workshop wow. uh, uh, from the get-go and the reason why they keep coming back is because they just love being in that space and supporting other men and and as i mentioned earlier about leadership one of the things i've tried to do especially the last 18 months or so is step back and let them take the lead so they will lead in certain areas throughout the workshop and I can take a step back and have a breather. And and while I'm doing that, they're growing as a leader and as an, as an individual. And they also are providing different perspectives rather than just mine. And those men have all done their journey, have all come through the other side. And we make sure the men who come on the workshops have grown and and understand themselves and the processes and and understand that this is just not a once-off. And you've you have you done the wheel of life? Have you done the wheel of life? No. 
Okay, so wheel of life is basically, whoops, wheel of life is basically it has like eight to ten parts of your life, relationships, finance, personal growth, recreation, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the, the men on the workshop who came to the first workshop as a participant, he's been back to nearly every single one since, and he actually uses that same wheel of life. And you've seen where initially he was scoring himself anywhere from one to four out of ten, and now he's up to seven, eights, and nines, and tens out of tens. And he's just continued to show that how it's grown over the years by continually doing the work. Mm. And and so he, so those men uh, are there to support emotionally, um, to uh, share their stories, to understand that these other men who are at the workshop or women at the workshop, they're not alone because we've all been there. We've all that's why we're sitting there now because we've been where they're sitting. Yeah. And once they understand that, they're more open to going, okay, so this is here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. Yeah. It's that the gift of giving back is so powerful um, in all walks of life. And so it's 100%. beautiful to hear that they're continuing to grow and learn and support and give back, which is which is wonderful. Now you four months ago you released a, a book called Soften the F Up. And you know, what was the, obviously you've, you're using your experiences, but what was the catalyst to actually put pen to paper and put it out there in the world? Ah, oh, good question. Um, look, for me, it was, it was initially, I didn't know what I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to write uh, about my journey and I didn't know how I was going to look or what it was, what it was going to be like, but I just... I, I I do as you know, I mean we we've shared the stage together. Uh you know, I'm I do public speaking, I want to share my story. And and when you get up on stage for 20 minutes to an hour and a half, you can only share so much. And with the book, it's like I get to share my not my whole journey, but you know, a major part of what gave me what caused me to be the person I was, what allowed me to uh, to change and turn my life around and the tools and skills that I learned along the way. So I talk about obviously my childhood stuff, um, my parents, the the uh, the issues I had in the police force um, in regards to some of the traumatic events I had there and how that all impacted and compounded on it and then how I found my way through the other side and then provide the tools and skills along the way. So it became sort of a, a bio self-help book along, I suppose, if that's what you want to call it. And and it was just to, if I can share that with one person, it makes a difference. And all of a sudden, that will have a ripple effect. And so that's that's basically what I wanted to get out there. It was just, again, sharing the message of hope and and show people that you can turn things around. Even if you're in a dark place, you can still turn things around and you know have the most amazing life. Mm. Is there any one thing that came up or during the writing process that was quite profound for you as a, as a person that you learned more about yourself? Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I I was on Father's Day a couple of years ago, and I got up early on a Sunday morning, and I was writing about that particular girl I mentioned earlier on, mm. and I'll call her Tina because that's her name in the book. That's not her real name, and. Uh, and I was writing about Tina, and this, and I've been putting this chapter off for a while. I just got there, and I just started smashing up this chapter about Tina, and and there was a moment where Mum and Dad moved to a uh, a different suburb in Perth, and it was where they lived. Her and, and so this bloke that she started dating, by the way, who I work with, they fell in love and got married, and still have kids you know they've got kids they're happily married and so it was their love story and I, mm. you know i look back and it's like that's great but for me it wasn't and i had a lot of time i, I struggled for many years about that and i remember walking through a shopping center one day which wasn't too close to mom and dad's place i remember seeing her and and my first reaction was oh shit and i ducked into the nearest store to my right and I hid behind the clothes rack so she wouldn't see me. And I thought, oh my God, I'm a fucking oh sorry, I'm a coward as well. Um and I, I and I and I so I wrote this whole chapter out 
And I realized there was so, I hadn't dealt with that particular issue around this particular person as much as I thought I had. Mm. Uh, even though I ran too many years earlier and just had a good conversation and just said, hi, and how are you? And happy for you, et cetera. But I was still had this, this weight attached to it. And we're driving up to Perth to go and see my parents. And Kim goes, what's wrong with you today? And I said, oh, I was writing about Tina this morning and I'm just in a filthy freaking mood. And, blah, blah, blah. and she goes, you need to get over that. You need to let that stuff go. And I went, yeah, I, I know. I realized that as of this morning and I'm, I'll be doing that for the next couple of days. So I spent the next couple of days just trying to process it, journaling about it, getting it out there and just getting it off my chest because I didn't realize that I hadn't quite dealt with that yet. So it was a, quite a few of those little learning moments for me, but that one was a big one. Mm. And it's, it's interesting because you know, I think everyone who writes learns more about themselves. But I'm really curious here is, is it is it a book that you need to read from start to finish? Is it a book that you can pick up different chapters or um, you know, how, how is it designed? It's actually can probably pick up different chapters. And and so how I wrote the book was I just had the sticky notes on the wall, wall with different ideas. And I just pull one off and just start writing it. And I just write the chapter as an individual thing. And then after I put all the chapters together, I was like, okay, what, what are they going? And so I just, it sort of follows a bit of a, an order, but it doesn't really. Uh, obviously, the, the back end is obviously towards the end is a bit more pulls the book together again. But honestly, you can re read different chapters and it's just they're all individuals. One will be about my childhood. One will be about my police days. One will be about uh, some analogies about life and, and mental health. And so you can actually just read it as an individual chapter by chapter, I suppose. Mm. And so for those people that are really, you know, curious about what you talk about and, and your experiences and want to purchase the book, well, what, what are some of the things that they can look forward to? For me, I think it's all about perspective and seeing, and I think life is about perspective and the book itself, I've tried to make it so you get to see things from a different perspective. Mm. You know, I talk about, I use the backpack analogy where when we go through life, we have this emotional backpack or baggage, whatever you want to call it, I call it emotional backpack. And and if we don't empty that backpack from the emotional traumas we suffer, and they might be small, such as being called a name or being bullied here and there, but if we don't empty that backpack every once in a while, then it weighs us down. And if you continue to have, you know, these traumas weigh you down then by the time you get to 50 like i was i was just suffering this cycle of depression on non-stop until i emptied that backpack i didn't know what it was like to be free of it mm. and so different analogies different ideas different thoughts different tools and it's just a different perspective on how i dealt with it as a man and my perspective of it through my eyes with life and depression for example yeah wow I think, you know, we've got a number of leaders who are on, who will be listening to this right now, you know, as a leader of an organization or a community or a group or team, whatever it may be, what is, what are some tips maybe in a way that you can create a space where people can feel free to speak up or people feel free to, to go and take that time off to, to try and explore what is happening and trying to understand things that may have maybe haunting them a little bit, maybe producing their anxiety. And, you know, there'd be certain cases where people just don't understand why they do something for in a certain way. Great question. I, I'm a massive Brene Brown fan, and I think vulnerability is a superpower. Uh, it's her words, not mine. And I think being open and vulnerable and being empathetic and creating that space you talked about to allow people to go, you know what, I'm allowed to reach out and ask for help. I'm allowed to share something. And, and by creating that culture within an organisation, within a group, within a family, whatever it is, it's really important to be vulnerable and empathetic and then listen. And when I say being vulnerable and sharing, you don't have to, you don't have to be like me and go, look, I'm just, I'm an open book. You know, here's, here's my entire story. I don't, I'm, I'm, that's just me. But as a leader in an organisation, for example, you can actually say, look, if someone comes to you, just I understand exactly what you're coming from. When I was 
younger, I felt this way. You don't have to tell them why, but just say, I felt this way because of, you know, I, I suffered depression mm. when I was a young bloke, or I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to feel that hurt in your heart. It's okay. It's okay to feel this, but it's also, it's also important to be aware of it and, and then to deal with it. And so you have to find a way to deal with it and then give them options. And if that means talking to a counsellor or talking to a psychologist or going to AA or um, doing a workshop or getting a mentor, whatever it is, you know, provide the space where they go, you know, it's okay to come talk to you. And then always follow up, always follow up. And not just once, numerous times. Come in, come in, have a chat this, and, and have, a, have a space where it's, it's uh, personal. It's not in front of a group of people where they might get embarrassed or, or they feel ashamed because not everyone can get through that shame and embarrassment really quickly and easily through that stigma, whatever they may be feeling. So creating the space, being in a quiet space where it's just the two of you and then just creating that culture. It's like it's okay to talk. It's okay to, to share and it's okay to ask for help. So that's I think that's the best way. Yeah, it's, look, you know, it's, for anyone out there, obviously, you know, it's important to have a conversation with someone, no matter how hard or difficult it feels at that time, you know, the ability to be able to express it, get it out, will take, you know, some of that emotional baggage off, you know, out of your backpack, so to speak, and, and allow you to be, to, to be a bit more free, be who you are. Um, I think it's really, really important. And obviously, as leaders, uh, you're going to create that space where people can. It's not always, it's not our full responsibility to look after the entire mental well-being of someone, but we do need to play our part. And I think it's important that we treat each person as a human being and each person as their own unique human being. And everyone's going to be a little bit different. Um, and some may have a little bit easier path through life and others have a little bit more challenging in the way that they have to deal with emotions or depression or anxiety. Uh, so being you know, being available is important. And stress. So, Craig, as a leader yourself and having been in that space where you led me in a workshop mm. or two, what are some of the, the, the things that you do create to create that space as well? What do you do as a leader? It's interesting uh, of a question. And look, to be honest, there's, there's, no, there's no plan. There is no... Um, there's no framework. There's nothing like that. For me, it is, I've always been in that space where I'm there. I'm always, I'll always go with the intention of what's holding someone back and how can I help? And so I'm always looking through that lens. It's never about how do I look? What am I saying? What am I going to say next? Um, what do I need to get out of this? It's always around what's holding you back and how can I help? And I think that the lens is enough for me to be able to, do what I naturally do and create a space. Um, I know when it comes to doing sales or working with clients and things like that as well, it, it's always it's always about relationships. Mm. And so for me, it's always about the importance of getting to know that person first and making sure that each person in the room feels like the most important person there um, and not me. I'm not the most important, never am. And so making sure that everyone else feels that um, I mean, that's how I approach it. It's not something I have unpacked. Um, I would like to unpack how I do, you know, kind of this stuff um, pretty well. Like, I wouldn't say I'm perfect. That's for sure. Far from that. But I do tend to create a space. And, you know, for me, uh, I think back to some conversations, people who have reached out to me who I haven't even had conversations with them. I haven't had conversations with them who have reached out to me and said, thank you very much for what you do. You actually saved my life. Mm. and so and so what what do i do naturally do that i don't know and i haven't unpacked that yet maybe i should i'm not sure maybe i'm just happy to be content and that in many cases i can be there for people and if i can help you know another person um that's great like i've, I've done my job as a human being i think you answered your own question mate with uh, what's holding this person back and how can I help? I think that is creating the space. 
that's doing it naturally. And I, I, you've, I've heard this before from you, and it's and I, it's just a reminder, and it's a beautiful thing that that is a beautiful perspective, a beautiful lens to look through. So you should be very proud of that. Mm. No, thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of the conversation, and I, I thinking, look. I'd love to leave it on that note, but I'm actually going to ask you, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners before we kind of uh, go out into a couple of key questions we love to ask every listener um, on the show? There's probably one thing that, you know, we need to do as leaders and as people in, in today's world, and that's just being our authentic selves. And I think that's you do that in spades when you lead as well, Craig. Mm. And and for me, I wasn't that until I was fifty, really, uh, because I was hiding who I was, how I felt, my emotions, and and by doing that, it just weighed me down and made things worse. So by being our authentic selves and and sharing, you know, our troubles a little bit. And you don't have to, share, again, share everything, but sharing it to the point where you, you allow yourself to heal and and get help and heal and move forward and grow, then I think that's really important. That authenticity uh, and being open to learning, sharing wisdom and growth, and then and never, and always be open to continue to grow and that's where we can change the world. Just continue to learn, grow, and, and share wisdom. Beautiful. Love that uh, piece of wisdom there from you. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Ooh, great question. I'm in the process of doing it now. I had a birthday not long ago, and I've got a didgeridoo for my birthday. So I'm learning to play the didgeridoo. Ah, very nice, very good. I had a we we had um, one of our colleagues play the didgeridoo for us recently. No one, no one in our group had ever heard this person play, and it was quite. It's fascinating. It's a beautiful, beautiful instrument, and the sounds and the stories you can share through that is quite special. What is the one question that you would love to solve? It's, it's got to go back to the mental health. How can we change the stigma, break the stigma around the negative stigma around mental health? Mm. How can we change the negative stigma around mental health to make it a positive one so it's like this is just a part of our conversation and we can just move forward in a positive way and help as many people as we can without having to worry about the stigma in the background. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's very good. It's a, it's a, it's a tough one to break, and, but it's an important mm-hmm. one, extremely important. For you, who is an inspiring great leader that, you know, either that's currently with us or that may have passed away uh, that you look up to? Uh, apart from... Obviously, my father, I mentioned earlier on, i massive fan of Muhammad Ali. Mm. And as a kid growing up, he was a world champion. Um, I was, you know, he was at the end of his career by this stage, but he just had that aura about him, which I didn't understand. But I watched the, the documentary When We Were Kings, and he was a leader for his people, for his rights as an individual, for his rights of his, of his people, and... He was a very articulate man, even though he I think he had dyslexia and he didn't read very well. But he was very highly intelligent. And I just the way he led in that space, massive fan of Muhammad. In fact, I've got a signed picture of him sitting right there. Oh yeah. He was probably one of the first um hip hop artists in a way, in in the way his poetry come through is very very clever very intelligent person um obviously sad to see him in his later years as as the effects of boxing um kicked Mm -hmm. in but uh yeah had a profound effect on this world not not just in sport yeah brett it's been a great conversation today and i'm sure many people would love to learn more about what you do and and be able to connect with you so what is the 
how, what is the best way that people can connect with you and learn f- more about what you do? You can come to Dr. Brett Della on Facebook. So that's B-R-E-T-T-E-L-L-A-R. Uh, and also the Momentum Revolution website, uh, just .com. And so you can go to either of those and there's lots of content, lots of videos. I'm always on there uh, sharing as much as I can and trying to help as many people as I can. Uh, Brett, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I'm, you know, you've had a remarkable journey in your life so far and, uh, you know, if things happen to us or things happen you know, that we're a part of and, you know, it's rather than dwelling on those things, it's like, how can we take that and use that as an opportunity Mm -hmm. to help and support and inspire other people? So I really, really love your approach and the importance of vulnerability, Uh, trying to create that space where people can be, uh, feel, feel like they have permission to speak up. That's such an important factor. And, um, I just really want to thank you um, for being willing to create a space where you feel comfortable to share your own story, um, which was quite traumatic, you know, for many, many years for you, uh, to allow people to understand that, you know, you're not alone, you have a voice, and there is always a way to a better path in the future. And so thank you very much uh, for your wonderful insights today. And uh, for those who haven't read the book, um, Soften the F Up, it's on all good books, uh, bookshelves. And so make sure you uh, take the time to order one online or, or find it in a good bookstore. Uh, so, Brett, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Craig. And thanks uh, for all your friendship and support over the years. And I'm looking forward to sharing many more moments with you. Thanks. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.